Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Well, insurance companies know the value of a clever symbol or slogan to be able to sell their products. So I'm going to give you a little test today about insurance companies, okay? What in, you got to give me some feedback here. What insurance company uses a gecko as its symbol? Geico, okay, that's pretty easy. What, what insurance company uses a duck as its symbol? You even said it right. Half like, yeah, right. What, what insurance company is on your side? Nationwide is on, you're in good hands with Allstate. I promise I'm not getting any commission today from any of those companies. But those slogans have a tendency to grab us, don't they, and pull us in. And all of them communicate the idea that that company is here to protect you. It is here to protect your assets, your future in the event of a loss. Well, this morning in Psalm 91, the psalm that comes next in this series for the summer, we are promised a much greater protection. The protection of God himself. If you have a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, then you are promised God's protection. And Psalm 91 gives us three assurances of God's protection. Three assurances that yes, you're in good hands if you have a personal relationship with God. So let's open our Bibles to Psalm 91 where we will find these three assurances of God's protection. Now when you come to a chapter like Psalm 91, you've got to be honest with, with some of the issues that, that stretch our integrity a little bit when we come to this kind of chapter. So I'm going to I'm going to mention this right up front. Psalm 91 is both triumphant and troubling. It is both comforting and puzzling. This song guarantees God's protection from harm and evil, but much of those promises seem to contradict our experience. What about suffering for the believer? What about believers who give their lives as martyrs for the cause of Christ? What about children with incurable diseases? What about adults, Christians, believers who suffer unimaginable horrors and tragedies in their lives? How do we reconcile that with these promises that nothing will ever harm us, that God will protect us? Well, stick with me for a little while, and I think we'll see how this all fits together as we look at this chapter in the context of the wholeness of scripture. Psalm 91, the three assurances of God's protection. The first assurance of God's protection is the reality of God's protection. We are promised the reality of God's protection in verses one and two. Follow along please as I read verses one and two. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Right off the bat, we are introduced to four descriptions of God. So the psalmist seems to, at the very beginning of this chapter, to be drawing our attention to the one we trust. You see, the issue of faith and trusting God for his protection is not an issue of how much faith you have or how strong your faith is. The issue really is, who are you trusting? And so the psalm introduces us 
to God, the one we trust. And notice the four descriptions of him. These descriptions are designed to introduce us to the fact that he is worthy of our trust. The first one is he is the most high. Now, whenever you find several names of God here, the, the, the writers of scripture are not just waxing poetic. They're not just piling words upon words to be redundant. These are designed to give us a full orbed picture of who God is. And so he's described, first of all, as the most high. In other words, he is above all gods. He is above all, above everyone, above everything. And right off the bat, we know that cuts every problem down to size. He is the most high. And then he is described in verse one as the almighty. The familiar Hebrew term El Shaddai, literally God, the mountain one. This name pictures the immovable strength and power of our God as the almighty one, God, the mountain one. And then he is described as the Lord in verse two. Now notice all of the letters in that word Lord are capitalized. Sometimes you'll find that in your Bible. Sometimes you'll find capital L, the rest of them in the lowercase. But whenever you find capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's a specific name for God. It's the name Yahweh in Hebrew or Jehovah in English. And it comes directly from, from Exodus chapter three. You remember God had chosen Moses to deliver the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt and Moses is making every excuse he can not to go. And one of those excuses is, well, who will I say sent me? I need to have some credentials. I need to have some authority. So who will I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. And the very Hebrew consonants for I am form the name Yahweh or Jehovah. You know what that means? It means the self-existent one. I am, I just am, God says. The self-existent one. God was never brought into being as we were. God will never cease to exist. There is nothing that can threaten his existence. No one, nothing in the universe can threaten the existence of God. He is the one that we trust. And then he is described as simply God, God. Now, that is also a specific name. It's the most common name used in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is Elohim, and it literally refers to God as the creator. But notice, it's not just you are the God, you are the creator. It is you are my God, my creator. In other words, the emphasis is on God made me. He knows all about me. And so this is the one we trust, the most high, exalted above all others. God, the mountain one of unmatched strength and power, the Lord Jehovah, the one who just is and nothing can take away from him. And God, my creator, the one who made me and knows all about me, that's the one we trust. That name is a powerful name. As we sang this morning, it is his name that we come to that, that uh, refers to everything he is and everything he does. If you're 25 years old or older, and I know I'm leaving out a lot of you this morning, but if you're 25 years old or older, you certainly remember the attacks upon our country on 9-11, 2001. There are images of that terrible attack that are etched in our minds forever. And one of those images is the one you see on the screen 
of people rushing away from those towers with horrified looks on their faces because of the towers come crashing to the ground. Those towers were struck by the terrorists because they represented the strength of America. Architectural strength, yes, but more uh, financial strength. But they came tumbling down. Those towers fell, and it created fear and panic. When I look at a scene like that, I'm always reminded of a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 18 and verse 10, which reminds us the name of the Lord is a fortified tower. Notice this, the righteous run to it and are safe. When people ran from the crumbling towers that represented the strength of America, we need to be reminded of the fact that we have a God whose name, whose very name, the Most High, the Almighty, Yahweh, Elohim, whose very name represents a tower into which we can run for safety. He is the one we trust. But the psalmist also describes the way we trust. The reality of God's protection is described, first of all, in terms of who he is, the one we trust, but also the way in which we trust. And I think it's important to see this because a lot of times faith, even faith in God, is pictured as some kind of, you know, foolhardy jump off a cliff. Throw caution to the wind, throw wisdom out the window, close your eyes, take a leap in the dark and hope Something good happens. And that's the way faith is often described, but that's not the way the Bible describes faith. Notice how faith is described in these verses. This is the way we trust. Verse one, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High. The word dwell meaning to continue, to remain. Shelter literally referring to a hiding place or a secret place. That term is often used in the Old Testament of God himself. So put that together, and the idea here is that the way we trust God is that we continue to come back into his presence regardless of what's happening. Regardless of what's going on in my life, I continue to come back to his word. I continue to come back to him in prayer. In other words, I don't give up on him. I don't get mad at God and say, you're not treating me very kindly, so I'm going to forget about you. No, no. Faith because we know who he is, continues to come back into his presence regardless of what's happening. The second way we trust him is that we, verse one, rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Remember, the Almighty is God, the mountain one. So the idea is being refreshed and renewed by the shadow of a great mountain. We know all about that in West Virginia, don't we? If you live in one of our hollows, excuse me, hollers, then you know what it's like to rest in the shadow of a mountain, to get relief from the draining sunshine of a hot summer day because you don't even see the mountain except between, or the sun except between 10 and 3 if you live in some hollows. You know what it's like to, to be refreshed by that shadow and resting, being refreshed, drawing strength from the shadow of our mountain God. The mountain one is the way we trust him. The third way we trust him is in verse two. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. The idea here is a military picture, like a bunker. 
This is something you can go into when the enemy is shelling you and you can find protection from the onslaught and attack of the enemy. You can feel safe and secure there. So you see, faith is not closing your eyes and jumping off a cliff and hoping God will catch you. Faith really is continuing to come back to his word and come to him in prayer no matter what's going on in your life continuing to dwell in his presence. It is drawing strength and peace and refreshment from his shadow, his awesome strength, God the mountain one. And it is resting in him, resting in the refuge and fortress that we have, the bunker that we have in him. That's what it means to understand and rest in, take advantage of the reality of God's protection. So we are assured of the reality of God's protection. But secondly, this chapter assures us of God's protection by reminding us of the evidence of God's protection. Verses three through eight, follow with me as I read verses three through eight. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked." These verses describe for us the amazing evidence of God's protection, how he actually protects us in the difficulties of life. And so what the psalmist paints for us is a picture of the things we fear. He describes in these verses five different kinds of fear. I love what we sang this morning about the name of Jesus drives out, dispels all fear. The shadows of darkness have to flee at the name of Jesus. We've just seen his name. And now we're going to look at the things we fear that cause us to be troubled in our soul and lose sight of who he is. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of fears. This is really a representative list of fears. But they represent five common fears that we have. Notice them, if you will. The first one is the fear of sudden traps. You see it there in verse 3. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare. Fowler's snare, trying to trap a bird possibly, or we might say a hunter's trap. Now, I'm, I'm not a hunter. I've never done much hunting but I'm friends with a lot of guys who do, and I understand enough about hunting to know that some game is better trapped than shot uh, or with a bow and arrow. Sometimes there are some game that you, you use a trap to get. And a trap is something you lay in deceitfulness, you lay in, in secret, out of sight, cover it up, trying to lure a person into that trap. Now, what happens with many of us is that someone may plan to trap us in their words or our words. They may try to do something or say something to try to get us to to fall into a danger that is unexpected. And this one can really play mind games with you because we go around imagining, what is that person saying about me? 
or what is that person going to do to me? What's going to happen to me today at work or at school? And we imagine all these hidden dangers that could trap us. I mean, this one is so crazy. Let me give you just a, a, a weird example of it in my own life. Just the other night, I was preaching at a church in, uh, in Bluefield, uh, Wednesday night. And uh, I was greeting some folks in the lobby before church. And then at a certain point, I decided to go ahead and go up front and be seated. And as I went up, I noticed some ladies on the end of an aisle. So I stopped to greet a couple of them that I had not greeted in the lobby. The third, I had already greeted in the lobby, so I didn't greet her again. And as I walked away from those three ladies, you know what I was thinking? Those two ladies I greeted, I I bet they're thinking about me. What a stuck-up pastor. He greeted two of us. The other person he didn't even notice, didn't even recognize. The fear of hidden traps. that, That can really play mind games with us sometimes. Sudden traps that we imagine. Then the second kind of fear that the psalmist talks about is the fear of deadly disease. You see it at the end of verse 3. Deadly pestilence. Again in verse 6, the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, the plague that destroys at midday. Deadly disease in ancient times was so feared because without the medical advances that we enjoy today, people were, were basically at the disease's mercy. Uh, there was typically no cure for whatever ailed someone. And so if, some, if a, a disease began to spread, an epidemic started either quickly or slowly, you just waited out with fear and anxiety and dread. And if you started to show symptoms, you just knew, my life is gone, I'm gonna die. And so in ancient times, there was a lot of fear around diseases We may think today because of medical advances in technology and medications that uh, we're not afraid of that anymore, but come on, be honest. We still are. There are still some words that strike fear in our hearts. Words like cancer. I I did some pulpit supply here about 10 years ago in the fall of 09. And I remember, some of you may recall, I told you the story of our daughter, middle daughter, Ruth, who lives in Chicago. She was diagnosed in December of 08 with a very rare form of bone cancer, so rare that a 25-year study by the Mayo Clinic had only been able to find 101 cases. There was only one doctor at the University of Chicago that even knew what it was and had some idea of how to treat it, and they just threw everything they could at her by way of radiation and chemo. It was a horrific nine months. Thankfully, she responded well to the treatment. She is still with us. She's had two more children since then, and we just thank the Lord for sparing her life. But once you've heard that word, cancer, there's always something in the back of your mind, and especially when the doctor says, if this ever comes back, it's over. There's no treatment, nothing else we can do, and the survival rate is practically zero that sticks with you. And that creates, like it or not, some fear. My mother died four years ago after a seven-year battle with Alzheimer's. What a horrible seven years that was. And I'll tell you, to this day, whenever I forget a name or I have trouble recalling a detail about something, there's a knot in the pit of my stomach And I find myself praying, oh God, I don't want to put my family through that. 
Yeah, we still fear disease today. There's still a lot of medical conditions, deadly diseases that create tremendous fear in us. The third fear that the psalmist references in verse 5 is unseen danger. Look at verse 5. You will not fear the terror of night. The idea is unseen, unseen danger. Danger I can't see because it's dark. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you are afraid of the dark? Oh, I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm bigger than that. I'm better than that. Well, okay. When was the last time you woke up in the middle of the night to a noise in your house and you wondered, what was that? And you're frozen in bed. Who? Did somebody break in? You know, darkness exacerbates our fears. My favorite all-time TV channel is the Weather Channel. Partly because I'm a bit of a weather geek, but partly because at my age, it really is necessary to have your local forecast repeated every 10 minutes. So I love the Weather Channel. I've watched a few programs on the Weather Channel about tornadoes. You just experienced a tornado here in Charleston, what, a week or so ago? They're fearful beasts, aren't they? But often when you hear a program about a tornado, you'll hear a meteorologist say, the worst tornadoes happen at night. Because in the darkness, especially if the power's out, you can't see where the storm is. You can't tell which direction it's moving. You can't really gauge its intensity. The fear factor is magnified in the dark, and so we still have the fear of unseen danger. The fourth kind of fear is the fear of enemy attacks. Notice, if you will, at the end of verse 5, you will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day. This is broad daylight attacks of the enemy, deadly force attacks. And it could be something like a terrorist attack. I think there's something in the back of our minds that questions if and when the next one will come. And that's a bit of fear. But it may be personal attack. It may be verbal attacks by someone. We all experience those kind of attacks. They're fearful. They're absolutely fearful. Have you ever had someone that when you saw them coming, you just tightened up inside and thought, oh no, what's coming now? What are they going to say? What are they going to do? You know, that person that you just don't see eye to eye with on things and you just kind of clash in your personality, don't get along with them very well, and, and they're always contradicting you. That's, that's a fear factor. Then the psalmist gives us one other kind of fear, and that is the fear of extreme catastrophe in verses 7 and 8. thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. This is extreme catastrophe. This is natural disasters. This is mass shootings. If anyone would have told me 46 years ago now when I started into the pastorate that one day I would do the research that would allow me to develop, train, and equip a security team for a church, I would have said, what are you smoking? What in the world is wrong with you? That's crazy. But almost every church now realizes the need for that kind of security. You know, one of the greatest fears we face in our generation is the fear of a mass shooting, a school, a place of business, a public forum, even a place of worship. 
These are very real fears. But these fears, these representative fears are listed for us here, not so that we can go home biting our nails and thinking, man, I got a lot to be afraid of. But the idea is that we don't need to fear these things. The whole passage that we read talks about, he will protect you from these fears. And the reason for that is the God who cares. The God who cares meets, if we will allow him to, the things we fear. Tucked right in the middle of this list of fears is verse four. Notice verse four. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. What a picture of the God who cares. The warm protectiveness of a mother bird. A few years ago, National Geographic magazine ran an article about a fire that had swept through Yellowstone National Park. And in the aftermath of the fire, forest rangers were walking up a hill trying to assess the damage. And one forest ranger came upon a site that he couldn't understand for a moment. And as he got closer, he realized it was a bird that had been literally petrified by the fire and the ash and was just sitting there on the ground like a statue. It was so eerie and grotesque, he took his stick and kind of knocked the bird over, and as he did, three little chicks scurried out from under her wings. That mother bird instinctively knew when the fire started to come to get her chicks out of the nest, smoke would rise, toxic fumes would kill them there. She needed to get them down on the ground. And as the fire came closer, she nestled them under her wings and protected them. And when the fire began to get so close that it began to scorch her, she did not flinch. She didn't move. She stayed right there and protected her chicks. And my friend, that is exactly what God has done for you. He loves you so much that he sent his very son to come down and take you under his wings and bear the hot, scorching fire of the wrath of God. And so when Jesus died on the cross and all of the fury of God's wrath because of sin was poured out, the hot fire of God's judgment was poured out, Jesus did not flinch. He pulled you close to himself and he died protecting you. He died in your place. He died for you. That's the God who cares. But he's not only described in terms of the warm protectiveness of a mother bird, he's also described in terms of armor. Look again at verse four. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. The shield is a large body covering shield. Rampart is a smaller mobile shield that allows you to move. Whatever protection you need, God will protect you. The hard, unyielding strength of armor. If you understand and rest in the one who cares, he will overcome the things you fear. West Virginia's own Chuck Yeager was the first man to break the sound barrier. In 1947, he was making his ninth flight in the X-1 rocket plane. It was a series of tests designed to push the limits toward the sound barrier. Scientists felt like maybe if you got up to Mach 1, 700 miles an hour, that it would actually crumple an airplane. And many pilots agreed because as they got near to that, the, the plane began shaking violently. So on this day, Chuck Yeager, born over here in Lincoln County, 
flew his X-1 rocket plane after it was dropped from a B-29 bomber. He stabilized it and got it on a level path and shot up to 42,000 feet and headed toward 0.97 Mach. And then all of a sudden, he began to feel those violent vibrations and it appeared as though, yeah, this thing is really happening. But, but suddenly, the needle went off the charts. He burst through the sound barrier and everything calmed down. In his words, he said, all the anxiety about breaking the sound barrier ended up being a perfectly paved highway. He said, Grandma could have been drinking lemonade up there. It was so smooth. Flight historians say that was the most significant flight between the Wright brothers, first flight in 1903, and the moon landing in 1969. Why? Because it showed we did not need to fear that barrier. Now, my friend, if you understand who, who God is, the God who cares for you, it will punch you right through the barriers of your fear and will calm the dread of soul that you sometimes have, the God who cares. The third assurance of God's protection is found in verses 9 through 16. We're not going to take the time to read those, but in those verses... The psalmist assures us of the three means of God's protection. Let me just mention them to you quickly. First of all, his presence in verses 9 and 10. If we say the Lord's our refuge, if we say he is our, our dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. And once again, we're faced with that dilemma, no harm will overtake us, no disaster will come near my tent. I'm not sure I understand that. What am I missing, John? What about Job? What about Paul? What about Jesus? What about me? Don't we have trouble and disaster that comes not only close to us, but hits us face on? We do. We have to see this in a much bigger picture. In the bigger picture of the gospel. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, Paul says this. He says, we know that all things, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And verse 29 tells us that purpose is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be made more like Jesus. But notice what he goes on to describe in verses 35 to 37. Some of the things that God works together for good. Notice these things that come into our lives. Who, what, or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's a pretty bad list, isn't it? But notice, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And notice this last verse. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So God's not promising that you will never have anything bad happen to you. He is promising that he will work all of that together to bring good, the image of Christ in your life, more Christ-likeness for you, to be more like him. He will work all that together for that purpose and that none of those things that happen to you will ever be able to separate you from his love and that purpose he's accomplishing in your life. And if you go back to these verses in Psalm 91, you'll find really that's exactly what it's saying. No harm will overtake you. It's the same idea as Romans 8, overcoming you. No harm will be able to, to consume you, to destroy you, to overtake you. And he says, no disaster will come near your tent. You mean I'll never have any threat to my house? No, no. See what he said there? If the Lord, if you say the Lord is my refuge, you make the most high your dwelling. 
If you are resting in him, like we saw in verses one and two, if you're looking to him, if your eyes are focused on him, there is nothing that can come near that dwelling, that tent, the place where you dwell. Nothing can affect him, his presence. Secondly, his protectors, his protectors. Verses 11 through 13 promise the help of his angels to be with you. You as plural, angels, or you as singular, angels are plural. The Lord knows that most of you need more than one guardian angel, so he sends a bunch. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 tells us, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Angels are sent by God to be a part of his protection plan for us, one of the means that he uses to protect us. And then finally, Verses 14 through 16 describe his promises. Read those verses sometime very, very slowly. You will find that God makes eight promises for you. For those who love me, he says, acknowledge my name and call on me. For those who meet those conditions, God makes you eight promises of his protection. A couple of years ago, I read a book entitled A Higher Call, written by Adam Makos. It was published in 2012. It's the fascinating story of a German World War II fighter pilot by the name of Franz Stigler. You see him there, the book title, and Franz Stigler is on the right. The, the guy that he was chasing is an American pilot who was flying a B-17 bomber, had just dropped its payload over Germany and was headed back toward England. And Franz Stigler caught up with him. Franz Stigler had already shot down two B-17s. You see, they were very vulnerable on their trip back because none of our fighter jets were protecting them. Then they had already dropped all their bombs. And so they were very vulnerable. The German pilots knew this. Franz Stigler had already shot down two that day. If he got one more, he would earn the German Knight's Cross, which was the highest military honor a German soldier could achieve. But something happened in those next few moments. As he pulled up to that plane to start firing on it, he noticed there were no tail gun lights blinking at him. He got a little closer and realized that the tail section of the plane had been completely blown off. He pulled up a little further and saw the nose section of the plane had completely been blown off. And most of the skin of the plane was completely blown off. And he could see frightened American pilots inside tending to the wounded and those who had died. Now, here's the thing. Franz Stigler, although he was in the German army, did not agree with a lot of what was going on in Germany. In fact, Franz Stigler was a believer he had grown up in a Christian home. He had a personal relationship with Christ. And he never forgot what his mother taught him, what he knew from his own personal relationship with Christ, and also what a high-principled instructor had told him when he told him, Franz, if you ever shoot down someone who's parachuting, I'll come kill you myself. Fight with honor and dignity. So he couldn't get those things out of his mind. He could not shoot down Charlie Brown's plane. Charlie Brown was flying that American fighter, bomber. He's from Weston, West Virginia, by the way. And so Stigler pulled up beside him, got close enough to the cockpit where he's trying to motion him to land. Well, Charlie doesn't want to land in Germany, have his whole crew taken captive, so he keeps on flying. 
but the plane is barely airworthy. And so Stigler tries to mouth the word Sweden, thinking that surely you can land over here in Sweden and you'll be safe. And Charlie can't figure out what he's saying. So he keeps on flying. So Franz Stigler decided, okay, I'm going to fly with him so that no other German fighter pilot will, will take him down. And I'm going to fly as far as I can with him until he can get to safety. He flew all the way to the English Channel before he realized it was too dangerous for him to go any further. He turned around, saluted Charlie Brown. And his last words were, you're in the Lord's hands now. Miraculously, Charlie Brown did make it to England and landed that plane. He spent 20 more years in the military, but he never could escape that incident. It always obsessed him. And so in 1990, he decided to put an ad in a military news magazine, hoping maybe someone would catch it. Who was it that didn't shoot me down that day? Amazingly, Franz Stigler, now living in Vancouver, British Columbia, saw that ad, turned to his wife, and excitedly said, this is the guy, this is the guy I didn't shoot down. They had a reunion. You can see them in the middle of the, the slide there. They had a reunion. Both of them found out each of them knew Christ as Savior. They became close friends and brothers in Christ. They died six months apart in 2008, and each one was listed in the other's obituary as a special brother in Christ. Amazing story. And my friend, God has never promised you that you'll not get banged up in life. He's never promised you that you will not take some of the shots of the enemy. He's never promised you that you won't have some damage as you go through life. What he has promised you is his protection. He will fly alongside you. He will be with you every step of the way and he will make sure you get home safely. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for the promise of your protection. Thank you that we can trust you with those promises. The God who cares, the God who is all that he claims to be. Now, just before we close, let me ask you to think in your own heart today, just take a moment to reflect. What is the fear that I'm struggling with right now? What is the issue or the problem that is creating such fear in my heart right now? And I want to ask you in these quiet moments, please recognize the God who loves you, the God who cares, and let him give you that peace and joy that comes from looking to him. Father, thank you for what you're doing in hearts right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.